Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Today's episode is sponsored by Hot Horses and Livestock. That's H-A-U-G-H-T, Horses and Livestock. They have a variety of horses for sale and you can check them out on Instagram at Hot Horses or on Facebook at Hot Performance Horses. We're grateful to have them as a sponsor and we really appreciate everyone who has sponsored the podcast this far. Um, from here on out, we're going to change the way we do sponsorships. We are looking for people who want to sponsor the podcast year round. And so if you or somebody you know is interested in sponsoring and you have some more questions for me, please send me an email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, I had the opportunity to sit down and visit with Jacob Carter Jacob's a fifth-generation rancher from Lund, Nevada, and I hope you enjoy his story. don't mind could you just introduce yourself to everyone listening and tell us a little bit about the history of your place yeah um jacob carter uh, we live in eastern nevada a little place called lund um small settlement uh, it's got a main road that goes through it but not too many people and we hope to keep it that way but uh, my family came here to settle in 1898 so i consider myself fifth generation here and look forward to having more generations beyond that. Um, we, uh, my family, when they came here, I, I guess I'll tell the story about that and the history about that. Our history kind of goes back to Mormon settlements. Um, and this one's kind of unique because uh, during the times of polygamy, the government came into a lot of settlements and areas and confiscated property to get the Mormons to comply with the new laws on polygamy, that it just wasn't going to happen. And so they confiscated the cattle, especially out of southern Utah. And that's where most of my family was, was in southern Utah. And the ranches in our area, there was three main ranches. Um, I can't remember the names of those ranches, but there are towns now that represent those. One was Ely, Nevada. The other one was Lund, Nevada, and Preston. Um, There was three main ranches, and they gave those cattle, which was a large amount of cattle, to those ranches. When Wilford Woodruff finally came out with his de- declaration stating that polygamy was not existent anymore, uh, the government gave the cattle back, and but we had to come get it. My ancestors had to come get it. When they came to get the cattle, the cattle didn't exist. And so uh, in that process, the government assumed that uh, they needed to pay that property back in order to do it. They confiscated the ranches that were holding the cattle. 
And so now that's where we ended up. And it wasn't too short time after that that many of my grandfathers, in fact five of them, came up from the St. George area to settle what is now Lund. Most of my family ended up in Lund. Um, Preston had a few. I did have some family in Preston, not as much in the Ely or what they called the Georgetown Ranch area. But it uh, it was quite an interesting opportunity. And so uh, my ancestors came up here. They settled the area. People were given range rights. Uh, there was no fences, so we were kind of in common. Yet we all had private property, meadow land, irrigated land. Um, everybody got a plot in the town. And so that's kind of how our history started here in Lund, um, going from ranching. I, I know my grandfathers before were good buckaroos. They, I mean, they, they covered a lot of country. Pine Valley, they loved to run cattle high in the Pine Valley area and then bring them down into the St. George area during the wintertime and back up into the Pine Valley area. And uh, my, my great-grandfather, um, Henry Lafayette Carter, was quite involved with that. And he, he loved doing that, but... Uh, he had an accident when he was younger, and it kind of slowed him up for buckarooing. And he went to freighting more than anything. He was freighting gold and silver in out of Nevada, and he uh, he died pretty young. But he's probably the last one that I can think of as a buckaroo in our family. The rest of us were more interested in agriculture, but in a different way, or um, not as much cattle horsemen, but more cattlemen. That we we wanted to keep agriculture in our family and continue continue forward with it. So that's a brief history of of, of who we are and what we do here in, in Lund, Nevada. Yeah, that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Do you know what happened to the people who were running the ranches when the government came back and confiscated it? <laughs> From what I understand is there was a pretty harsh winter in 1898. In 1897 and 98 and 99, they were having some really tough times. And so most of the cattle actually died. And oh, what okay. didn't die, they ended up getting rid of, just taking them off and selling them in order to pay their bills. So because they didn't take care of the cattle, uh, that was part of it. But most of it was because of the harsh winter that happened during that time. I think they were experiencing that all over the West. Montana had some of that same experience. And ranchers were completely taken out during that time because they didn't have enough hay to supply um, feed to their cattle and they died. So I think that's what Gosh. happened mostly. Yeah. When you um, came here and decided that you wanted to run this place, what, where did you get your knowledge from? Was it passed down through the generations, your great-grandpa, grandpa, dad, to well, you? Well, I, I don't consider myself much of a, a buckaroo, um, although I love, that's what keeps me going a lot of times. Um, when you're on your horse and you're on the top of a mountain and you're trying to get cows off the top of the mountain, and doing those, that, that really keeps me going. But what, what really brought me here is I loved it as a kid. Um, not all of us kids, you know, in my family would get engaged in it. We would do it because we needed to do it, and we got paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, my family really believed in paying kids to go out and work, and, and it was good for them to earn money for college or whatever it was. I just really loved it. I really loved the outdoors. I loved getting horseback. Um, so I really wanted to be a part of it and continue to be a part of it. And I feel like my grandfather um, really did a great job in preserving a vision of what he saw, what we could be and what we could do in ranching. He wasn't much of a 
cattleman or a cowboy, and his his experience with cowboying is is his, his uncle um, sent him over the mountain one day to to take care of the cows. And my uncle ended up driving around on the other side of the mountain because it's basically we have to go over a mountain to get to our mountain. And as he was going through town, he ended up finding a place to stop and take a rest and <laughs> and drink a little bit. And he didn't make it over there. He came home. And so my grandfather Aww. got over there to tend to the cattle and he was supposed to bring the food and the bedding and everything. And so my grandfather took care of the cattle. He slept on the ground. No one showed up. And so he rode home. And I think that was mostly the last time he ever buckarooed. Really? And that was pretty pretty early on. And so he thought, I don't want to get rid of buckarooing or cowboying or running cattle. But he started his own case dealership with his father and started getting into selling equipment. But still desired to keep the ranch going. And that's when my grand, my, my father really kind of took, the, took over that in the 70s and started to really grow it. And I really was impressed with the way my dad operated. He was he was quite a cattleman. I wouldn't say he was necessarily a great cowboy, horseback, but what a cattleman he was. He, the way he took care of his cattle, the way he he um, managed the land and the resource, and and we started to to do things that would help us work with the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, and and the wildlife and they really we started to work together a lot better and better for the land better for our community better for us that excited me so that's really why i had a great desire to come back is for all those different reasons environmental um, getting to be on horseback and there's still a little romanticism about it that you get to enjoy every day yeah for sure we saw some wild horses on our way in and you i am wondering what kind of effect those have on your place well, they, we have great history here with wild horses. In fact, I don't know if you can consider them Mustangs anymore, but they are and they had a purpose. In our valley, we had the southern herd and we had the northern herd. And there's a small round corral in the middle of the valley where they would gather the horses to. Um, and this was years before I. This is in the 40s uh-huh. and the 50s, right? Yeah. And they would gather those horses and they would keep track of those herds and they would take care of those herds. They would take care of the ones that shouldn't be around and they would grab the ones that needed to be broke and used um, and then they would let the rest go and they kept the herd separate and so they managed those herds really well. I think when we started to kind of change that and it started to turn into wild free and roaming horses, um, I think it's important for people to understand that they're not the wild and free roaming horses that we thought they were. They were managed just like we manage our cattle today, just like we manage our horse herds today. And they have purpose, and I understand where we're at today in the country with wild horses. Um, I am not an advocate of getting rid of all the wild horses, um, but I am also an advocate of managing them like we used to, mm-hmm. like we should today, so that we can have cattle, sheep, wildlife, and horses. They have their purpose, but uh, at the at the numbers that they're at today, they're going, they're devastating the landscape. Um, we manage our cattle; the horses got to be managed too. In what ways do they devastate it? Do you mind going into that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, so, you know, cattle have lowers teeth, right? And they, and they can only eat so much of a plant, or, and, they, and they choose plants a lot differently. And the way we manage our operation is we, we do a lot of um, rotational grazing, and that's including BLM. We don't stay at a place too long. Larger numbers, 
uh, shorter periods of time, and we rotate through. It, it does take more work. It takes a lot more cowboying, which I don't complain about, because um, that's my excuse to get out and go do something, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something enjoyable. Um, and so we, we herd cattle when they're calving. It, it doesn't matter. We herd them. And all horses, when they find a spot, they can just sit on that spot. Really? And if the feed is gone, it doesn't matter. They'll, they'll just keep going at it, and they'll take root and all. And if there's no water, uh, that comes, that's harsher more on the horse population than anything. But horses can be devastating with not only mass numbers, but they're very territorial. And, and they don't move like cattle do. They don't, uh, they don't herd um, themselves away from something. You have to do that. And if you see the grass going, it's time to get cattle out. If it's not raining and snowing, you can't put cattle in. Um, and we don't have the control of that on horses. Horses have both uppers and bottom teeth. And they can get pretty low on a plant, um, whether it's white sage, which that is the most sacred plant we have around here is white sage or winter fat to keep those cattle going in the wintertime and, and the horses will devastate that. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your operation? Yeah, you bet. Um, we're, we have a great operation. We're a little spread out, um, but we have not only win good winter range with winter fat and, and forbs and brush and, and grass to eat on, and uh, the temperatures are a little bit better, but we also go up to about 8,000, 9,000 feet in the summertime or fall time to graze as well up on the mountain with lots of good grass and, and good springs. Um, and in between, we have irrigated pasture, pivots, and sub-irrigated meadows that we, we uh, end up uh, breeding on in the summertime and try not to take the bulls on the mountain because if you, you take bulls on the mountain, sometimes they don't come back down. <laughs> they get lost up there pretty easy and, and uh, uh, we, we like to keep them down here. Plus with disease and, and neighbors that we have, we like to respect uh, them as well. But we, we have great winter range especially when it's raining. It's been pretty tough the last 15 or 20 years with this drought that we're in. And I keep thinking my ancestors, why in the heck they stopped in, in Utah and they stopped here when they could have just went to California or something or <laughs> up into Oregon where it rains, yeah. you know. But they stopped here in, in mm. uh, the driest state in the nation. And it takes, <laughs> it takes really crucial management. Uh, my dad started in the 80s what he calls holistic resource management, which was brought in by over... A lot of it from Africa, talking about um, the way that they graze herds. Okay. And um, Alan Savory was a big push on that, and he really got into that. And that's really what saved us. We went from being able to run about 600 head of cows, and now being able to run up to 1,300 head of cows in, in good times, all because of the management practices that we do. Herding and management-intensive grazing and resting uh, your land so that it can it can breathe and come back and get some moisture on it and come back and not overusing those plants. Um, without grass, without something to eat, those, we got nothing. We have yeah. nothing. And so it's important to manage that part of it. I like managing cows. I, I would say that I'm a good cattleman, but I, I think I enjoy managing more of the resource than anything. And so that's why I hire good people to to take care of the other stuff too and take <laughs> care of cattle health and, and those types of things. But I think we have a great operation. We have good opportunities um, with uh, grass and um, wildlife and everything in between. Nice. 
What would you say one of the hardest obstacles you face is? <laughs> oh man, there's so many out there. My wife could tell you better because I complain <laughs> to her every day about all those obstacles. But I think labor is a big issue. Right now I have some of the best help I've ever had. But that hasn't always been the case. I think that more and more people are not getting excited about agriculture. And I think work ethic is very difficult. I think that that sums up kind of how trying to do agriculture these days is just so difficult because of the knowledge. And if, if people go to college, they somewhat don't want to come back and do the dirty work and build <laughs> fences. And they, they want to be managing and they want to work up in the company. Well, a lot of times it takes 20 years to learn your ranch before you really become extremely useful on it. Yeah, There's a lot to learn, a lot to grow from. That's a big obstacle I see in the future. Um, but How do you think we can improve that excitement for the younger generations coming up? You know, I hope, I hope I'm doing that with my own children. I, I have six children. Um, they're pretty young. I do have, I have one that's leaving here pretty soon out of the house. And, and I'm okay that they don't like agriculture and want to go do something else. I, I'm okay with that because I definitely don't want to force somebody into it. I think that that's the wrong way to go. But I think by going out every day and working together as families, working together and, and making it a positive place to go. I know that 50 or 60 years ago it was roping you off your horse if you didn't do what was right, right? And <laughs> putting you on the worst worst horse possible. But I've kind of changed my look at that. I'm, I put my kids on some of the best horses so that they have a good experience every day. And I, I joke with them and have fun with them. When it's time to get busy and work hard, I'm not afraid to yell at them and to get them going where they need to be. And I know the guy that works for me that runs my cows, he, uh, uh, he's not afraid to tell them they need to be in their spot. When you start in that spot, you stay in that spot. And, uh, and it's fun to watch them get excited about that kind of thing. But I think we need to create a good atmosphere in agriculture. It's not like it used to be. They don't have to do agriculture, but we desire them to. We desire to have them raise their families where we're raising our families. And that's the reason we're doing it a lot of times. It's not we we don't raise cows because of the good price we get. We raise <laughs> cows because we we love it because it's a tradition and we enjoy doing it. So I think we need to change that culture a little bit and and give our kids an opportunity. And even kids that don't exist, I hire kids from Vegas that come up out of Vegas and I give them a good experience here. I pay them good. I teach them a lot of things and That's awesome. and there's been a lot of lives that have been changed by getting kids out of the city and teaching them what we do. Mhm. I think it's important. Yeah, me too, definitely. <laughs> Have you noticed a big change in them when they versus when they first come here and when they leave? Coming Their mothers say so. Really? Uh, they don't <laughs> tell me as much, but I've had a couple kids come out of Vegas, um, um, friends of the family, and they swear I've saved their kids by having them work on the ranch because they've learned work ethic, they learned to go do something, and they learned to have pride in what they do. Um, we build a lot of fence, and I always teach my kids... We're not building, I'm not teaching you how to build fence. I'm teaching you how to do a job right and get it finished. Because yeah. in the real world, that's what it's going to have to teach you. And I think that's what ranches do for kids is they teach them how to do things that uh, they would otherwise wouldn't do. Yeah. Even when it's something undesirable, like it still has to be done. Yes, it still has to be done. I mean, you've got to feed the cows. Mm -hmm. The fence has to be finished because your neighbor's coming in with cows the next day and we have to keep them separate. Things have to get finished. And I think that's really important, something that most kids don't get in the day. Well, I'm just going to quit then. Yeah. You know, that yeah. it's kind of the, I'm just going to quit. 
And I don't like to see that. I like to see kids finish their jobs and do what they need to. I was just having a conversation with one of my friends about that the other day. And I was talking about how I hope that I can raise my future kids to have that work ethic and pride. And I think you're right that the best way to do that is by giving them a job starting from a young age and showing them the pride that they can feel by accomplishing it even when they don't want to. And I look back on like my dad taking me out with him and how many times I was done for the day. And he was like, okay, where are you going to go? Right. (laughs) What are you going to do? And there's nowhere to go. You have to finish a job when you start it. And then when you're done, you can be done but not up until then. And I think that is definitely a skill that a lot of people are lacking. Where else do you learn that but ranching? Really? I mean, most shops close their doors at five o'clock, whether the job's done or not, most times. Not a ranch. We don't do that, right? Yeah, yeah. That concludes part one of my interview with Jacob Carter. Stay tuned for part two coming out in two weeks. Some of you have asked what the best way to support this podcast is, and there are a few options. The first one would be to leave us a rating and a review on whatever podcast platform you listen on. We really appreciate those and we go through and read them every once in a while and it's kind of fun to see who has been listening and and who's left us a review. Um, Another way would be to follow us on Instagram. Our Instagram is at cowboystories underscore podcast. We do a few different giveaways on that page throughout the year so that would be something fun to check out. Also, at the end of all of our episodes, there's a link at the end that says support this podcast. You can click on that and it will give you a few different options. Or you can become a sponsor. And if you have any questions about sponsorship or if you would like to nominate someone to be on the show, please send us an email. We love hearing from you guys. And our email is cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.